Well, for those at home, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and grab your Bibles as those who are here. And I'm going to ask you to go ahead and open up to the last chapter of Genesis. Uh, that's Genesis chapter 50. We're going to be covering the final verses of, of Genesis today. I'll find it in my Bible here. <clears throat> And then if you're able, we ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word. So we'll be picking up at verse 15 today. There you'll find these words. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, <clears throat> because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, for I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children of Maker, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Brothers and sisters, the word of the Lord, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again uh, for this privilege to gather uh, via the live stream, uh, via those who are in the room with us today, to take time to sing songs to you, to worship you through sacrificing some of the gifts that you have given to us to make sure that your work continues in the world. Uh, and then, Lord, to uh, hear from your word today. We dare not embark upon this uh, moment of the service without asking for your aid and your mercy and that your spirit uh, would speak through a human vessel to the hearts and minds of your people, uh, that they may hear your word clearly, that you may work in their hearts that which you want to see accomplished in their lives. Lord, we want you to be glorified. We want the name of your son to be honored. Uh, Lord, as Lord Jesus, you said when you were here that the father desires that the son is honored just as the father is, and we desire to do that. We desire to be yielded to the spirit. Lord, if there's anything in our lives, in my life, that has been um, unconfessed or would stand in the way of me serving as an instrument to minister or a tool in your hands this morning to minister to your people, would you uh, remove that, pardon it, cleanse me so that I might serve you, Lord, that I might be a pure vessel to honor you. Lord, we desire that you are honored in every way. We want you to be pleased with what you're witnessing here today. Work in your people, Lord. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. <clears throat> so a number of years ago, we had the privilege to uh, engage in searching for our first home purchase. And so my wife and I, after uh, much debate and selection, finally agreed upon a home that we both could uh, live with, that we liked. And so we put in our offer um, on a Friday afternoon. Uh, the builder's representative who was working to sell with our agent uh, 
accepted our offer and verbally, verbally accepted our offer, but because it was a Friday afternoon, he let us know that uh, after the weekend he would process the paperwork and would get back to us on Monday and we would move forward with uh, moving toward closing to close the deal uh, and so that we would have our first home. And so for us, we thought to ourselves, we're in it now. We're, this is great. We're, we're making our way to our first home purchase. And so uh, excited on Friday, we were overjoyed as we were starting to pack up our apartment and prepare for our move to our new home that would probably be taking place in a few weeks. Well, Saturday passed and Sunday passed and we came to Church of Living Water and Monday came around and uh, Monday passed and no word. Tuesday passed and no word. So we got a little word and we called our agent and our agent um, said, hey, don't worry, sometimes just because of the weekend, things take a little bit longer. There's other things that they're doing as well. You're not the only customer they have and yada, yada, and those types of things. And so we weren't worried, and finally another day passed, and our agent then contacted them to see what was going on. It was then that we received a phone call from our agent to let us know some unbelievable news. The house had been sold, but not to us, to someone else. Somewhere over the weekend on that Saturday and Sunday, another couple had come in and found out that we had put an offer on in the house and to, to outbid us, they offered more money to the builder. And even though we had a verbal agreement that the offer had been accepted, they decided to sell the house from under us to make a few more thousand dollars. Now, of course, not only was our agent shocked that someone would act in such an unethical way, we were shocked, we couldn't believe how did this happen? I mean, how, how could something like this happen? And it's right out of the gate on your first house purchase. I can understand if it had been the second or third house purchase, but your first time out and you lose a house because of some unethical things that really made us begin to question. Our hearts were broken. But this just reminds me of a reality, and that is that in this life, people are going to hurt and offend you. Sometimes the people will intentionally insult you, and you won't know the reason why they've chosen to do that. On some other occasions, people will choose to handle a situation in a way that will offend or hurt you. And they may later tell you, that was not my intention. At times, people will take advantage of you for their own profit sometimes, or for some benefit that they might gain from doing that and it might just leave you in a bad position. There are times in your life where people will lie to you, and sometimes they will lie about you to others. There will be times when people will violate your trust, and there will be occasions that sometimes people may take things that rightfully belong to you, and you won't be able to regain what has been removed. When we consider it, we realize that there are many ways in this life that people can hurt us. And sadly, as I reflected on things that have happened in my life and incidents that I've experienced, I realized that it's not just a worldly type of thing. Sometimes the most painful experiences of people hurting us happen in the closest relationships. It's a relative who does it to you. Or sadly, it's another church member. Someone who has shared faith in Jesus Christ hurts you. Because what the Bible says is true. We live in a world of sinners. Now, on some rare occasions, people's hearts change in time. Their eyes are open. They recognize, perhaps because of some experience that they've had where they've been hurt, and they reflect on what they've done to you, and they come back to you. And they want to make amends. They want to rectify the wrong that they have done to you, and they seek to make peace. On some other occasions, that's not what happens. What ends up happening is that throughout the way life is arranged, the tables turn in such a way that now you're in a position to hurt them. And you can take advantage of that if you want to in light of the fact of what they've done to you in the past. And the question becomes for us as Christians, whether we're in either one of those situations, whether they've come back seeking peace or whether the tables have turned and we're now in the position of power to do damage to them, what do we do in those situations? I would venture to guess that you already know the answer to that question because you've been 
saturated with the scriptures. You study what God's word and says, but for the sake of today, I simply want to remind you what scripture teaches us as we face the situations of past hurt and people who have hurt us from the past when they come repentant or we've been put in a position of power to deal with them. Well, today we're going to finish the book of Genesis. And after I was talking with Pastor Mike last night after the service, I think we've been in the book of Genesis now for some approximately two years. So today we're going to bring our sermon series to a finality and a close as we look at the end of the life of Joseph. If you weren't here last week, uh, Mike Bungle did an excellent job of talking about death and grieving by looking at the life or death and the end of uh, Jacob's life. And if you haven't heard that, I would encourage you to listen to that message. But this message is predicated upon what happened in last week because these are the events that take place after the funeral of Jacob. Now, as a pastor, uh, funerals can be, uh, can, can, can be a relief for some, but sometimes what happens after the funeral can be more of a pastoral problem. And that is because uh, the nature of the relationships between those who are left, uh, if there have been past unresolved issues in the family, they seem to erupt when the person has died or sometimes it's arguments over uh, property and things like that. But, but, but we have been in situations as pastors where once the funeral is over, that's when the chaos really starts. Because whatever was holding the family together, perhaps that parent was the peacemaker, now the peacemaker is gone and there's nothing to keep the friction or the tension at bay. And so the family relationships began to deteriorate sometimes in very physical ways. And that's kind of the situation that's going on here, at least from the brothers' perspective. As we just read, their father's funeral is now over. And Joseph's older brothers fear, if you look back at the text, retribution at Joseph's hands. It seems like for the last 17 years, we get a, a window now into what's been going on in their hearts and minds. That is, at least these older brothers about what they feel towards Joseph or how they view what's been happening, even though Joseph has been treating them with kindness. They feel like dad has been the peacemaker in the family who has kept Joseph at bay and held back his anger and his wrath for what they had done to him some 40 years earlier. And they're not sure that because of the pain that Joseph endured for those 13 years of his life of slavery and imprisonment and all those things as a result of them selling him into slavery and betraying him, that he had actually truly forgiven them. But they thought, but perhaps Joseph had just been biding his time. And he was just waiting until dad was no longer around so that he could express how he truly felt about them. And the only thing holding them back was loyalty to dad, but dad was now dead. So there was no reason any longer for Joseph to restrain his vengeance toward his brothers. So what do they do? Well, we look in the text, we'll find there how they respond in light of this inward reality that they perceive about Joseph. Notice what the text says. If you look in your Bibles there, you'll notice a few things. Let me just highlight a few things to you. They make some requests for forgiveness. So you think your brother, who's now a dignitary and a political figure, who has the ability to utilize the resources and armies of Egypt, one of the greatest armies on the earth at that time, uh, and he's the second in charge, he could inflict great pain upon you and your family and your children and all that you possess. And so they seek forgiveness. And they're going to put every effort into making peace. If you just notice some things in there. First, you'll notice in the text, if you're looking at the text, they don't go to Joseph directly. What they do is they seek an intermediary. They send someone else in their place to kind of put a cushion in there. You know, let me kind of soften him up. We, we won't go directly because if he's angry with us, that is a bad thing. So we kind of want to have someone kind of intercede for us to kind of, you know, make him softer. And what they do to do that is they send a message. But notice what the message is that they send. They say to him, hey, before dad died, dad said he wants you to forgive us for all the dirt that we did to you in the past. It's not us making this request. Dad, from the grave, 
is making this request, right? Now, the reality is from the text, we don't know whether or not what they're saying is true. It's unverifiable. I lean towards myself personally that this was a fabricated uh, attempt to put it at dad's on dad who is now passed and, you know, dad's dying wishes for you to let your brothers go. You know, how much weight does that give to the brother who loves his father, right? And so I think that's kind of the way they're, they're leaning towards this. Hey, listen, dad wanted you to let us go. That was his dying wish, right? And so they kind of want this weight, and so they're putting on that. Notice in the text something else. They don't say our father. Notice what, the, what they use there to modify it. It's your father. We don't even want to talk about the fact that he's our dad. We got to emphasize your dad wanted you to do this. They're playing this up as well as they can. Not only do they do that, but they compound the wrong that they've done. They, they want Joseph to understand that they recognize the wrong they've done. Look at the text. They use three words in English that are translated here to talk about how bad it was what they've done. They use the word transgression, the word sin, and the word evil. They're trying to tell Joseph, we understand that we did you wrong. And we're going to use every word in our vocabulary to communicate how badly we treated you. They go on then to emphasize that they also have some relationships in common. Listen, listen, Joseph, we want you to forgive us. But remember, you know, we are brothers. You know, we're brothers, right? We got the same dad. And not only do we have the same dad, so we have a, a physical connection. We are also servants of the same God. We have a spiritual connection. They're trying to do everything they can to seek peace. Finally, they show up themselves, and notice how they posture themselves, which recalls back the dreams of when Joseph was much younger, some 40 years ago, because Joseph now is uh, in his late 50s, almost 60 years old at the time, and they're in their late 50s, early 60s at this point. Notice what they, they do. They fall down before him and notice what they say to him, Joseph, Joseph, just let us be your slaves. That's what they ask for request. So when we walk away from all of this and, and, and considering all that, we realize that if we don't get anything else from the text, we get this. The brothers sincerely want there to be peace between Joseph and them and for him to release them from the debt of what they had done wrong to him in the past. They want freedom. They want for him to let them go. Now, how does Joseph respond? Because the text really is all about Joseph. We know this by the way in the text, the way everyone is referred to in the text. If you look, it doesn't actually just name the brothers. What it calls them is Joseph's brothers. The view is all about Joseph. So how does he respond to the text? Does he lash out at them? Does he use his power in this moment to inflict upon them all the wrong that they've done to him in the past, now that he has the upper hand? No. He responds like a person whose heart has been changed towards those who have hurt him in the past. Look at the end of verse 17 there with me. Notice this is when we first see these words together. It reminds us of a famous New Testament verse, but it's someone different. Not Jesus wept. Joseph wept. Why is he crying? Well, the text doesn't tell us why he's shedding tears here. But we might surmise what it might be, considering what happened in chapter 45 of Genesis when there was this reconciliation between them and Joseph cried a lot during those moments. Most likely, I might imagine that Joseph is here heartbroken at what is happening in front of him. Because in this moment of what's happening now, Joseph has come to realize something about his brothers that have been happening in their heart towards him for the last 17 years. Joseph, over the last 17 years, has been trying to, by action, demonstrate that he loves his brothers. He's been taking care of them. He's been providing for them. He's been using his power and influence to look out for their families, to make sure that they were cared for in a foreign land. He's been doing everything he can to show them that I am reconciled to you. 
And for his perspective, most likely he felt like because of all the laughs that had happened over the last 17 years, the good times they had had, that their relationship had truly been reconciled only now to come after dad's death to hear his brother say, we think you still hate us. I don't know if you've ever tried to show someone you love them and only after you've done that to hear them say to you, for all you've done, I still don't think you love me. And the pain that that would cause you, I think that's why he shed tears. Notice how he responds to them. He responds in kind. They request twice for him to forgive, and twice he tells them, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Why? Because my heart has been changed. This is water under the bridge. I've forgiven you long ago, and I've tried to show that to you. I'm in a different place now. I'm in a different place now. And he goes on to say, not only am I in a different place, but you can rest assured that what I've been doing for the past 17 years, I will continue to do as long as I live, which is to use my power, my influence, and my position in society to look out for your benefit and for the benefit of your children. I want you to know that I love you and you don't have anything to be afraid of. See, what we see here in the text is Joseph deals with those who have hurt him in the past because of his relationship with God with kindness and forgiveness. Kindness and forgiveness. And that's what I want to encourage us to do today as well. Now, I realize this passage is a descriptive passage. That is, it just simply describes for the us events that happen in Joseph's life with his brothers as we come to a concluding of Genesis. But what I would like to say is that what we have here, what is portrayed for us, is a good demonstration of how the believer, those who follow Jesus Christ, ought to act in these types of situations. It's a picture because we draw upon the New Testament teaching that shows us that this is how it could play out in a real life circumstance. Let me remind you of some of those teachings from the New Testament that point us in this very direction. We simply go back to the words of Jesus when he was preaching his great sermon on the Mount. Let me re re rehearse some of that to you. Here in the text we find this. You have heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In another place, when a disciple came to Jesus and asked about how often he should forgive, this is what Jesus had to say. Then Peter came to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. The Lord will go on to tell this parable about a steward who owed a great debt to a king. Sought that king for forgiveness. That king so graciously relieved him of his debt. He went out and found a servant who owed him a minor debt and wanted that debt to be repaid. The king found out about it and dealt with the servant accordingly. And then Jesus makes a sobering statement to his disciples at the end of that parable when he said this. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Now this teaching that Jesus gives 
gets repeated in the church as the apostles take up the teaching of Jesus and reapply it in the context of the church. Let me give you one example of that as Paul writes to believers in Ephesus as he says these words. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Similar to Joseph, I would say that when God affords us the opportunity because those who've heard us in the past have come seeking peace or perhaps we've been put in a position of power now to pay them back, then instead the way we ought to respond is to seek to deal with them with kindness and forgiveness. And we can do it because of the same reason Joseph was able to do it. We have a relationship with God that has come to us through his son, Jesus Christ, and it is by the means of the Spirit. So we have the commands of Jesus and his apostles that encourage us to move in this direction, but I also believe Joseph illustrates for us some additional reasons of why we would want to move in this direction, and I want to show you those to you from the text. So we've looked at what Joseph did, and now I want to look at the why Joseph did it. So we find the first reason of why Joseph did what he did in verse 19 of chapter 50. Let's look back at that. So the text reads, but Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph recognizes his rightful place under God in this situation. He understood that there were certain prerogatives that belong only to God. Now to understand kind of what Joseph is getting at here, we have to remind ourselves of what we've learned about God from Genesis already because his words are invested with the theology and the view of God that Genesis has already taught us. So we simply need to let our minds recall what Genesis teaches us. From the very first pages of the Bible, we see that God is the creator and arranger and orderer of all things that pertain to the world and the universe. And as Colossians says, to even those invisible things. But most often in Genesis, it's not the emphasis on God as creator, but God as the one who rules and makes decisions about what happens to human beings. Let me recall for you a few examples of names of instances where God was the one who made a determination about what happened to human beings. Think back to the garden after the, the Adam and Eve sin. God was the one who determined. Think about Noah's generation, the Tower of Babel. Think about Hagar. Think about Abimelech. And these are just a few of the examples from Genesis that show us that when people are, or things are happening in people's lives, God intervenes and decides how that's going to play out. Now, it's right before the Sodom and Gomorrah incident that we get the plain stating of how God is viewed in Genesis. And we find it on the lips of Abraham as he enters negotiation with God about what's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. And we find these words there uh, as he's negotiating with God. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked, far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? There we find it stated plainly. Genesis views God as the judge of all the earth. Jacob recognized this in dealing with his wife, who uh, in, the, in her sadness and grief over her infertility came to him in desperation and asked him, begged him, to resolve this situation for her. But notice how her husband responds to her. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, which is Joseph's mother. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Well, Jacob recognizes, he says, listen, wife, I did not make this judgment about your battle with infertility. God has done that, and I cannot undo that. That's his prerogative, and I can't overstep those bounds. And it's the same kind of idea that comes to Joseph when he deals with his brothers. He recognizes that vengeance is a prerogative of God and not of man. And so he says, do I stand in God's place? Am I to step into God's role to do what only God 
should do. And ultimately, Joseph says, no, it's to God and to those he authorizes that has the right to act in this way. Now, we see this truth brought over into the New Testament as the apostle takes this concept and applies it to New Testament believers and says, in light of this reality, this is how you ought to behave in your relationships with others. Here it is, Romans chapter 12, Paul writes this. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Where does Paul get this concept from? He gets it from the very life of Jesus because of how Jesus lived his life. Notice how Peter reflects on Jesus' life and what he says about him in light of this reality. He says, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you examples so that you might also follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's exactly what Christ did. He left vengeance to God, and God ultimately judged and vindicated Jesus with the resurrection from the dead. I like the way one writer summed this up when he was thinking about and reflecting on these concepts. He said this, God punishes the wicked. However, we are saved to offer mercy, not vindication. So he went on to ask in the article, when you come to these situations and you feel that vengeance bubbling up in you towards those who have hurt you in the past, he asked the questions, how far would you go in order to be right? What's really motivating your actions? Is it simply a desire of the flesh? I would say in those moments when you have the opportunity, instead of seeking vengeance, seek to offer kindness and forgiveness to those who've hurt you because vengeance belongs to God. We find the second reason in verse 20. Verse 20. We find the words of Joseph as he talks to his brothers. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph not only recognizes his rightful place under God, and there are certain things that belong to God and not to humans, but he also recognizes God's providence in his life, and he trusts in what God is doing. And that ultimately is what helps him forgive and release his brothers from the debt of the things that they had done to him wrongly in the past and for him to be able to move forward with treating them with kindness. Now, we don't always have the privilege of understanding what God is doing when someone else has mistreated us in life and how that's going to play out. We are not always given those answers. However, when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we can see how God can take evil intentions and accomplish great good. Remember, some of the, the religious leaders, those who seem to have the most influence at the time, because not all of them agreed with the decision, wanted to get rid of Jesus, right? That, that's ultimately what this was about. They simply wanted to get Jesus out of their hair, and they thought the best way to do that was to offer him up, uh, which led to his murder, of course, and Jesus died. But it was by means of those evil intentions that God accomplished the greatest good. He brought about the salvation of human souls to save sinners through the death of Jesus Christ. Their intentions, definitely evil. God's intention, good. Life, salvation of human souls that people's sins could be forgiven. And that's why we go around now and tell people that the only way that their sins can be forgiven for them to receive the gift of God's spirit and to be put in a right relationship with God is through the death and resurrection of of Jesus Christ. And it is because of that reality, as Paul reflects on what's happening in life, that he writes in Romans these words. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's not that everything is going to be good in your life, but it's that God, who has a good hand, is working the things, even the evil intentions of others, to accomplish his good purposes in your life. And that's why you can offer kindness and forgiveness, because you trust that God is at work in the world, and that even when people hurt you, it does not lie outside of God's control to take what they've done to you and use it for good. Now, occasionally the Lord will allow us to get a, a small reminder of what this might look like on this side of heaven before we get a chance to be in Jesus's presence. So I'll just recall for you the event that I started off telling you about, which was the whole debacle about the house sale. So our agent, after finding out about this, diligently went, went on to, to advocate for us and confronted the representative of the builder with the wrong that he had done and called him out on it and how he had acted unethically in light of what had been done. Once confronted, he recognized his wrong. The representative admitted his wrong and sought to make amends. As a result of that, we were able to find a home that was actually better suited for our family needs. It was offered at a lower price, and it had some amenities that we would have otherwise not been able to get. Not then to mention that, but then as we began to live there, in addition to those things, we were placed in a neighborhood where we were able to make friends with our neighbors, and they have become great friends, and we've had the chance to share Jesus Christ with them, and because we've had a chance to share Jesus Christ with them, we have a daily reminder that living a Christian life is not just about living it on Sundays, it's about living it every day in front of your neighbors. And that has been helpful to us in being able to be uh, good Christian examples because we're reminded because our, believe, our neighbors are unbelievers that Christ has to be lived out every day and in every way in front of everyone. That's one of the ways sometimes God lets us see how he works it out. Now, most often, we will never know the reasons why. For instance, recently I had a battle with COVID. I don't know why I got the coronavirus. I have taken precautions. I used to pray every day, going to work and coming home. Lord, I don't put my trust in a mask. I put my trust in your great care. I realize that a mask can only do so much. It's just part of my human responsibility, but it's not the mask keeping me. It's you keeping me. So I prayed to God, I put my trust in him, I took precautions, and yet I still contracted the coronavirus. Now you might ask, and I ask myself, why is that the case? And the reality is, I do not have an answer for you. Here is a bad thing that I wanted to avoid in my life, like Job said. I did these things in order so that I might not encounter these things, and yet God still allowed them to happen. But what I do know is this that even though this bad thing happened in my life, it rests in the hands of a good and wise God who loves me and sent his son to die for me. I don't know what bad things have happened in your life, but the same thing is true for you. That bad thing or bad things in your life rest in the hands of a good and wise God who loves you and sent his son to die for you. And he's not finished working out his good purposes in your life just yet. Now we've come to the final reason in the text. It's not directly related to Joseph's relationships with his brothers, per se, in relationship to him forgiving them, but there is something we can learn as he lays it out that I think is still helpful for us in dealing with past hurts. We find that in verses 24 and verse 25. There we find Joseph saying here as he gets ready, like his father, to close his eyes in death. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will visit you and he will bring you up out of the land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and, shall carry, and you shall carry up my bones from here. What we see in the text is that ultimately because Joseph has been a man of faith, we've seen that throughout Genesis, we see this played out even at the end of his life. He trusts in God's promises for future deliverance. And that's what helps him live his life. Joseph is a man who trusts God's promises. And I would say the same thing is true for us. See, trusting in God's promises for future deliverance helps us deal with the pain of the present reality that we live in. 
See, we believe that Jesus lived, died, was raised from the dead, ascended to the right hand of God, and one day God is going to send him to come back. And when he does return, he's going to rescue us. He's going to transform our mortal bodies to look like his heavenly body, his glorified body, and we will be lifted above the cares of this life at that time. And if our hope is fixed on that reality, it will help us to respond with kindness and forgiveness. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul reflects on suffering in light of the glory that is to be revealed. He says this, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that, be, that is to be revealed to us. The Apostle John goes on to say about this future hope, these words that help us put things in perspective. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. As our hope is fixed on the future reality of what God is going to do when Christ returns for us, then it helps us in the present to grapple with the pain that we feel because we know that our story will have a great end. The reality is your best life is not now. Your best life is when Jesus appears in glory with the armies of heaven and the holy angels and he changes you to look just like him so that you will live in God's presence forever. That's when you will have your best life. And that hope, that reality ought to give you hope to move forward through the pain of the present. But the question is, do you really believe that that's true for you? As I sat down with Pat, uh, one of our church elders earlier this week, our church administrator, I was sharing with him my sermon because I like to, to run my outlines by people during the week to get some feedback, you know, see if what I'm seeing in the text seems to make sense to other people. And I was sharing with him my outline where I was going in light of the observations I had made in the text. And, uh, and he asked me a valid question, and I thought, oh, this is a good question I probably should address in the sermon. And so he asked me this question after hearing, in light of me describing the observations I had made in the text, kind of the outline I had worked out, uh, he said this. He said, what do you do with family members and church members who have hurt you in the past, but they don't repent or seek forgiveness? What do you do with those people? I would first say, I think a good place to start is if you know that and if that is true in your life, pray for them. Pray that God changes their heart. Perhaps they don't, like the brothers of Joseph, see the wrong that they've done to you. Ask God to open their eyes. God may have to do that through working some situations out in their life where they are hurt and they then realize how they hurt you so that they will come and seek forgiveness. But then also ask God to help you to let them go. And that's more for you than it is for them. Because if you don't let them go, then you open the door for the root of bitterness to be planted in your heart. And the, the, the sad thing about bitterness, it brings all these other negative emotions. And what that does to us is it changes us. It changes our disposition so that we become bitter people. And you know what we end up doing? Hurting others. The very thing that we didn't want done to us. Now, about a year ago, our community group went through a book called Relationships by Timothy Lane and Paul Tripp. If you haven't read the book, I'd encourage you to do so. Great little book. But in that book, they have this one chapter where they address this concept of how you deal with people when it comes to forgiveness. I can't give you all the chapter, but I just want to re recite to you just a small portion that I think brings some great insight about how these things relate. They base, they base it on two different scriptures about forgiveness. Let me share both of those scriptures with you, and then I'll share with you what they said about these two scriptures. The first one is Mark eleven twenty five, 25, and it says this, And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. And they pair this up with Luke chapter 17, verse 3. And we find these words written there. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Now, these two passages might seem contradictory, 
but they're going to explain how this works together. Let me share that with you. They said this in the writings. These verses are talking about two different aspects of forgiveness. Mark 11:25 is talking about forgiveness as a heart attitude before God. The context is worship. When I consider someone's sin, as I stand before the Lord, I am called to have an attitude of forgiveness toward the person who sinned against me. This is a non-negotiable. I do not have the right to withhold forgiveness and harbor bitterness in my heart. Luke 17, 3, on the other hand, is talking about forgiveness as a horizontal transaction between me and the offender. That, this is often referred to as the reconciliation aspect. The point of Luke 17:3 makes is that while I am to have an attitude of forgiveness before the Lord, I can only grant forgiveness to the other person if he or she repents and admits that he or she has sinned against me. Even if he or she never does, I'm called to maintain an attitude of forgiveness toward the offender. The vertical aspect of forgiveness is unconditional, but the horizontal aspect depends upon the offender when admitting guilt and asking for forgiveness. So there's a vertical aspect and there's a horizontal aspect. Now, someone may say, well, how do I keep people from running me over? They go on to explain in that Matthew 18, in the context of the church, Jesus lays out how we're to deal with sin in a godly way. And then, of course, Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 18 that we read earlier, says that he understands that in our relationships to seek peace with people, there are at times limits to that because it requires that the other person also want peace. So there are some limits. Let me conclude with a story about how this worked out in my own life to give you an illustration of what this might look like uh, as, it, as it played out. And I'll close with this. So at my previous church, one of my pastors uh, at the time got into conflict with another member of the pastoral staff. At the time, I did not know that they were in conflict. And so uh, I had an experience with the person they were in. He was in conflict with, and uh, during that time, I uh, sought my pastor out in confidence to share what had happened, to seek his counsel about what I should do because of the situation that had happened. And so I shared that, and he shared some, some thoughts with me. Sometime after that, uh, my pastor was in an executive team meeting with the executives of the church and the other pastors, and whatever was going on in their conflict rose up in that meeting, and my pastor was trying to make an argument and make a point. And in his making his argument and point, he divulged the things that I had shared with him in confidence to prove and win the argument that he was making. Now, unbeknownst to me that, that this was happening, I was then called in to corroborate the information that had been shared during this meeting. But I was not told why I was being called into the meeting. I just walked in blind to a room full of all of the executive team. And one of the persons had been tasked with asking me questions. And so it almost felt like when I got into a room in interrogation. So as I'm in the room trying to figure out what's going on, as the questions began to come and I began to answer them, it becomes apparently clear to me what has just happened. And in that moment, when I realized what had happened, a lot of negative emotions began to well up in me. I felt a great sense of betrayal, anger, frustration, uh, and, and this was all happening in me as I was answering these questions. I then left the meeting. I was, once they, I answered all their questions, they excused me from the meeting, and they went on with their meeting. Later that afternoon, the pastor came back from the meeting, and I went to him and pulled him aside and, and, and wanted to talk with him about it. And I shared with him that I had been greatly disappointed about what had happened because I did not expect that to be the outcome of me sharing something in confidence with him. And this is what he said to me in response. Listen, man, sometimes you just need to toughen up and deal with these things. Now, you can imagine that that was not the response that I was looking for from my pastor. When I felt like he had just done me dirty, he had threw me under the bus. So in my heart, as the weeks began to pass, more bitterness, anger, resentment, and frustration began to grow in my heart towards him. And it became harder and harder to work there. I realized that I could not continue to work at the church and my heart continued to move in that direction. So I finally came to a point 
in which I got down before the Lord and I began to pray and ask God to take from me the feelings that I was having toward him. And God, in his grace, did exactly that. He removed from me those negative feelings and emotions and thoughts that I had towards my pastor so that I could operate in kindness toward him. Now, he did not ever repent for that, but God allowed my heart to change so I was able to treat him with kindness and forgiveness. But you know what I did not do until the time that he left? I did not, because he was not willing to repent, confide in him again and seek his counsel. And that's how I think sometimes this works out in the real world. When we deal with people and they are unwilling to repent, we want to have a heart of forgiveness. So if they do repent, we're ready to offer it freely to them. But if they don't, that might mean that reconciliation is not able to happen. But what I would say to you today, brothers and sisters, you want your heart to be in the position so that if God does present the opportunity, you're ready to forgive and deal with that person in kindness. That ought to be the direction you want to often move in. Why can you do that? Where do you find the power to do that? It's right there. The cross of Jesus Christ. Paul said it to us earlier. Where do we find the ability to forgive? We simply think about what God has done for us in Christ and the debt we have been relieved of. And that gives us the motivation to release those others. Although the debt feels big to us, in the great scheme of things, it's a small debt compared to what we owe God. It's Jesus who gives us the ability to forgive. So as you have the opportunity, seek to show kindness and forgiveness to those who've hurt you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I realize, Lord, that, that this is a heavy and a hard thing to do when we think about some of the pain that people have inflicted upon us in the past. And yet, Lord, as followers of Jesus Christ, we realize that no matter what anyone else has done to us is not greater than what we have done to you. And we think about the fact that the reason Christ though he was not guilty of anything, allowed himself to be put to death was for our sin. That's why he bled, he suffered, he died. He took on your wrath for us. And it's because of Jesus that we can find hope to move beyond the pain of the present. And we ask God that by your spirit, you would take your word, take what Jesus has done, that good news, and apply it to our hearts in such a way that we, from our hearts, will forgive those who hurt us in the past. I don't know what pains are still in my brothers and sisters' lives that as I was sharing this message, those images, those persons came up in their minds. Lord, it may have been something extremely painful that was done to them. I pray by your grace and time that you will help them to have a disposition of forgiveness. And if that person has not repented, Father, I pray that you would open their eyes, change their hearts, arrange their lives in such a way that they will see the wrong that they've done. And like Joseph's brothers, will come seeking forgiveness. And because my brothers and sisters' hearts are rightly aligned with you in that moment, because they stand before you in worship with a heart of forgiveness, that when that day comes, they will freely grant it and deal with this other person in kindness and forgiveness. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Would you